Um, just give me a little, oh, Robert, we're going to want to switch off that. It, it appears as though I flubbed a little bit and don't have all the verses on the screen. So uh, I'm going to encourage you to open your Bibles, maybe even a digital Bible. That can be quicker to get to some stuff. And I want us to be looking at some of these passages together um, uh, in, in the Word of God this morning. And we are going to be talking about priesthood. We're going to be talking about priesthood this morning. Um, I don't know if any of you have ever, uh, how many of you have ever read or watched uh, a mystery show or read a mystery novel? Any of you, that your thing? Any of you ever watched a whodunit type of scenario? Or maybe you've played, what's that game? Is it Clue? Right? Um, one, one author, his name is David Steinmetz, he compared reading the Old Testament to reading a mystery novel. And I think it's actually a good comparison because when you read a mystery novel or you watch one of these whodunit type of shows, Shelby and I are into one right now and watching that together. It's funny because at the end when they reveal who actually did the crime, they always kind of recap and it's as if all of the clues were hidden in plain sight. But the whole show you're watching, like, could it be this person? And I don't, know, I don't know if you're like me. I'm always trying to guess, right? And it's always the wrong person. You know, I guess like three different people. And then, you know, the really good ones, they all get killed off, the ones that you think are the murderer. And so, you know, they get killed off like, oh, man, I'm wrong. And you keep going and keep going. And then by the very end, when they reveal who actually did it, it seems as though it should have been obvious the whole time. And I think that's the case for how the Old Testament correlates to the New. That these these principles, these ideas, these ways that God's word is pointing us to Christ, if you're just reading along, they may seem embedded and hidden. But as a new covenant believer, when we look back, it's as though they're in plain sight. This morning, I want to show you kind of the hidden in plain sight clues that point us to a greater high priest named Jesus. And I want to show you these Old Testament things that are pointing us not just to Jesus in his priestly ministry, but to you and I and the priesthood that we have as believers in Christ. I told you we're going to be in a lot of scripture today. So I'm, I'm going to use my digital Bible. I prefer a physical one, but I should have put these on the screen. And apparently I really messed up this week. I want us to look at the first priest in the Bible. And it may surprise you that the first priest, his name was Adam. Now, the actual first occurrence of the word priest shows up in Genesis 14, which we'll talk about in a minute. But sometimes we don't think of Adam as a priest. But Adam very much is a priest. Look at Genesis 2.15. We've talked about this a couple times in Genesis series, that God gives Adam a job description. Look at Genesis 2.15. And it says that the Lord God took the man to put and put him in the Garden of Eden to, and here's his job description, to dress it and to keep it. Okay, that's Adam's job description. Now, if you flip over to Numbers 3.8, what's interesting is those two words, the two Hebrew words behind that, don't show up together again until Numbers 3.8. And in Numbers 3.8, it's describing the job of the Levites. The King James translates it differently, but it's the same words. It says, and they shall 
keep all the instruments of the tabernacle of the congregation. Now, we use the word keep like to hold on to, but that means to guard, to protect. So there was a concern for protecting the garden and protecting the instruments of the tabernacle. And at the end of verse eight in Numbers three, to do the service. It's the same word as to dress the garden. So what Moses is doing, Moses wrote Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, right? He's pointing us to the fact that Adam's job was very priestly. It was a worshipful job. His job was to protect the garden in the same way that the Levites were called to protect the temple. And we'll talk about the correlation between the garden and the temple next week. And then there's a second connection in Adam's story to the priest. And it's what we talked about actually last Sunday morning in the clothing. Remember that it says God made coats of skins. Well, that idea of God or or someone giving a coat only shows up twice in two other contexts in the Pentateuch. The first time it shows up again is with Joseph and his coat of many colors given by his father. Then the second time it shows up is with the garments that the priests were given. There's this emphasis on the garments that God and the people clothed the priests with. And so Adam is this first priest. But then the first real occurrence of the idea of priest is in Genesis 14. Let's look at Genesis 14 together. With this guy named Melchizedek. Are you in Genesis 14? Verses 17 through 20. And this is taking place, if you remember the story, Lot, Abram's nephew, gets kidnapped and taken away in battle. And Abram has to go and rescue him. He fulfills this kingly function, which we'll talk about in a couple of weeks. And he wins the battle, believe it or not. He conquers like this powerhouse alliance in the Middle East. Five different kings. Look at verse 17 of Genesis 14. It says, and the king of Sodom went out to meet him after the return from the slaughter of Cairdo Laomer, and of the kings that were with him in the valley of Sheva, which is the king's dale. Look at verse 18. In Melchizedek, what's the next word? King. So Melchizedek is a king. He's the king of Salem. He brought forth bread and wine. Now, when you see bread and wine, where else is that pointing you to in Scripture? Where bread and wine are together. I'm sorry, the Lord's Supper. What else? Think Old Testament as well. Bread and wine. What's the Old Testament equivalent to communion? What feast was it? Passover, right? Well, who wrote about Passover? The same guy who wrote Genesis, right? So he's, he's almost kind of given us these like foreshadowing, almost like this mystery novel. So there's this victory that's won, right? Like God would win in Egypt. There's bread and wine. There's a king Melchizedek, but it also says he is the priest. Look at verse 18. He's the priest of the Most High God. Now, what's interesting is priest and king were separate offices throughout the rest of the Old Testament. But who joins the office of king and priest together? Christ does. So here's Melchizedek. And there's this overlap between priest and king. There's this victory over the enemies. There's this celebration of victory with bread and wine. And then look at verse 19. What does Melchizedek do to Abraham? He what? Blessed him. Whoa. Now Genesis 12, we talked about this in the covenants. 
What did God say he would do to Abraham? He would bless him. This is the first time this shows up after Abraham's calling. And so as Moses is writing us, writing this, he's, he's wanting Melchizedek to almost play in the role of who? God. He is blessing Abraham. He's from the nations and yet he's blessing Abraham. And he says, he, he says, blessed be Abraham of the most high God, possessor of heaven and earth. Now that's interesting that he says Abraham would possess all of the earth. Because Abraham was promised what? The land. But this is our earliest indication that God had something more in mind for Abraham and his seed than just a square of land. He has the whole earth in mind. And blessed be the most high God, which had delivered thine enemies into thy hand. And then Abraham tithes to Melchizedek. Now, Hebrews will pick up on this idea of Melchizedek and say that he was a type of Christ. He was foreshadowing Christ because he was a priest and a king. He, the Hebrew says that because of no indication of the text where he came from, where he went, did he die, that the Old Testament maybe gives us the idea that this was someone who was eternal. Maybe he was a pre-incarnate appearance of Christ. And so here's what we learn about priests from Melchizedek. This is your blank. It's not on the screen because I messed up, but it's this. Priests extend God's blessing to his chosen people. Then you fast forward, really the only other occurrence of the idea of priest doesn't really happen other than speaking of foreign priests until Exodus 19. Go to Exodus 19. This is a very key passage. We've referenced it several places. This is the formation of the old covenant with Israel. And God in Exodus 19 is going to describe Israel as a kingdom of priests. So like Adam who was placed in the garden, Israel was placed in the land. And just as Adam was to expand the borders of the garden, remember his job from God was to subdue all of creation. So also God's vision for Israel was not just their square or rectangle of land. Israel was to expand their borders and be a blessing to all nations. The ends of the earth, it says in Psalm 2, were her possession. So God's vision for Israel was far bigger than this rectangle of land that he gave them. And so as they're placed in this land, he gives them the same job he gave Adam in the land. Look at Exodus 19, verse six. It says, and ye shall be unto me a kingdom of priests. Now that's interesting because normally a priest was in office within the nation. Gods didn't call everybody to be a priest. No God, uh, most gods would call certain people to be priests. But the idea here is that all of Israel was to function like a priest. They were to be God's representatives, his ministers. That's another way that the idea of priesthood shows up in the Old and the New Testament, the word minister. He was also calling them to be his ambassador to the nations. And why is he calling them priests? Because just like the priests, in comparison to the nations, all of Israel had special access to God. They were called into relationship with God, and it was their job to bring that blessing to all of the nations. They were a kingdom of priests, and they were supposed to, like the individual priests, bless the rest of the nations by declaring the knowledge of God. Okay? And because they failed in the same way that Adam failed, they thus lost the land just like Adam lost the garden. 
So what does this teach us about priests? This is your blank. Priests are God's representatives in the world and are responsible to extend his kingdom to all the nations. Believe it or not, evangelism is embedded in the idea of priesthood. It's embedded in that idea. But what's interesting is though there's this priestly nation, there's, there's, there's these individual priests. Look at Numbers chapter number 16. And there's this Levitical priesthood that God calls out, right? So he has a kingdom of priests, but he also calls out a section of the people. And if you read the book of Numbers, which I've been listening to it on audio, you know, embedded in all of the lists of names in the, in the, the uh, censuses that are taken, God is replacing this idea that he had in Exodus 19, or sorry, Exodus 15, that he would take a tithe or a firstling from all the families. He says, I want all the firstborn. Well, Numbers, he says, instead of the firstborn, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to take a whole tribe. I'm going to take the tribe of the Levites, and they're going to be my special inheritance. So instead of taking the firstborn of all your families, I'm going to call out this Levitical priesthood, and they are going to be ministers unto me, and they are going to buffer between me and you. And so the Levitical priesthood served to be a buffer between God and the people, because here's what we learned about covenant. God always works through a mediator, doesn't he? God never deals directly with the nations. He never deals directly with the nation. He always works through a mediator, and that mediator would be the high priest and the priesthood. And look at the privilege God describes for those who would be priests in Numbers chapter 16, verse number nine. God's actually rebuking one of the priests who was trying to take Moses' place, but listen to what he says. Seemeth it but a small thing unto you that the God of Israel hath separated you from the congregation of Israel? Now pay attention to these words. To bring you near to himself. Now pay attention to those words because they'll show up in Hebrews. To do the service of the tabernacle and to stand before the congregation and minister to him. Verse number 19, and he hath brought thee near to him. And we'll talk about this later next week in the temple that quite literally the priests were geographically closer to God. There were only certain people that could enter the holy place and the most holy place and those people were priests. So here's what we learn about priesthood in the Old Testament. That priests, the Levitical priests, here's your blank, had the special privilege of drawing near to God's presence. But then above all of the priests, there was a certain special priest. Do you remember what his title was? High priest, right, John? And the high priest was distinct from the other priests because he could go even closer to God. He was allowed to enter into one specific area, one specific room. Do you remember the name of that special place that the high priest only could enter? The Holy of Holies. We'll talk about that more next week. The only time that the Holy of Holies could be entered, and you can write down Leviticus, actually it's on there, Leviticus 16 is on the Day of Atonement. And it, I believe it's in Hebrews 7 that the New Testament author is going to correlate so many different things about the atonement sacrifice in Leviticus 16 to the priestly ministry of Christ. But what would happen on that Day of Atonement was very significant. You know that the children of Israel, they offered a bunch of sacrifices, right? But what's interesting, in all of the sacrifices Israel could make, they could only offer sacrifices for a certain type of sin. 
And it's what was kind of called accidental sins. Right? You don't intentionally rebel against God. You do things because we're all falling like, oh no, it's not because I hate God or I'm stubbornly resisting him. So as an Israelite, you could only offer sacrifices on those sins. Well, then the question is, what do we do about the sins that we commit intentionally? High-handed sins. The Old Testament word for it is trespasses. It's actually a very specific word. And the only time those sins could be atoned for, the ones that you and I intentionally do, was on the Day of Atonement. The Old Testament is showing us that there are certain types of sins even you and I can't come to God about. We need someone else to offer a sacrifice on our behalf. And this is the Day of Atonement. The Day of Atonement was specifically done for the sins of the nation, particularly the high-handed trespasses of the nation, the intentional direct acts of rebellion against God. And he would on this day, and we could talk so much more about it. I just read about it this week in my Bible. But here's the principle that the high priest, this is your blank, would offer sacrifice to atone for sins. Atone for sins. Now who can give me their best definition of the word atone? In your own words, what does that word atone mean? We gotta use Bible words and know what they mean, right? What it, just give me your best guess. Pay? Yeah, it's, it's almost like the, I was doing some digging this morning, it's almost like a, a bartering agreement, right? So, so we're dealing away our sins in atonement, okay? So that was what the high priest did. Now, what's interesting, and we've talked about this with sacrifice, sometimes our mistake when we read the Old Testament is we think that Jesus just showed up and just changed everything, right? That like, he just, like by his own authority in his words, he said, all right, now all this is done away with and it's just me. But actually, if you're reading the Old Testament in order, consecutively, the further you get in the Old Testament, the more it starts saying, God's gonna do away with this stuff and replace it with something better. And we start getting these, these indications all the way back in 1 Samuel 2. Turn to 1 Samuel 2, and you're gonna see that, and this is your blank, that God already, already was planning to replace the priesthood with an eternal priest king. There it is, they're combined. Look at 1 Samuel 2. In verse 30. Okay? <clears throat> now, can any of you remember when the book of 1 Samuel opens who the high priest is at the time? The Bible makes fun of how old he and, and blind he is. Remember his name? Eli, that's right. Eli's the high priest. Remember what the deal was with Eli, God's uh, criticism or frustration with Eli? Remember what it was? He had an issue particularly, not with himself, though the Bible clearly points the blame at him. It was with someone else. His sons. His sons were mismanaging the offerings. They were scooping off stuff that was actually supposed to be sacrificed to God, and they were taking it for themselves. Okay? So God, through the man of God, in 1 Samuel 2, gives this word to the priestly household of Eli. <clears throat> Uh, 
I said that thy house in the house of thy, sorry, wherefore the Lord of God Israel saith, I said indeed that thy house, who's thy house? It's, it's Eli's house. And then he says, the house of thy father should walk before me forever. Now hold on. Who's the house of his father? It's not Eli's direct father. He's talking about the household of Aaron, the whole Levitical priesthood. Because who did God set up as the priest? It was the household of Aaron, who was like Eli's great, 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 great grandfather, right? He says that they should walk before me forever. But now the Lord saith, be it far from me. For them that honor me, I will honor, and they that despise me shall be lightly esteemed. Behold, the days come that I will cut off thine arm and the arm of thy father's house. Who's his father's house? Not just Eli, not just his daddy-o, it's his great, 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 great granddad, Aaron. He says, I'm gonna cut off the arm of thy father's house that there shall not be an old man in thine house. And thou shalt see an enemy in my habitation and all the wealth which the Lord, which God shall give thee. And there shall not be an old man in thine house forever. Now drop down to verse number 35. And I will raise me up a faithful priest. Now, what's interesting as we're reading this, we think God is talking about Samuel because Samuel would be the one who would succeed in the line of of Elon after sons and would take over and he would be a priest and he would be a prophet. But now as we read further on, we realize God's not just talking about Samuel. I'll raise me up a faithful priest that shall do according to that which is in mine heart and in my mind, and I will build him a sure house. Now, think back to our lesson on covenant. When God talks about building a house, does that remind you of one of the covenants? Do you remember which one? God will build a house of who forever? David, which by the way is in later in the Samuel books. So God is now using very similar language, not about the office of king, but about the office of priest. There's very big similarities. And he shall walk before mine anointed. Who's the anointed? The king, right? Are we on the same page? Am I boring you? Okay, all right. Give me a head nod, y'all. Some of you are literally falling asleep. Well, actually, only one of you. So he shall walk before mine anointed. Look at the last word of verse number 35. Last two words. What does it say? Forever. Okay, now we're not talking about Samuel. Because does Samuel live forever? No. In fact, Samuel, he has his own problems. He, he has the same problems as Eli. The, the nation basically asks him to step down because his sons are a problem. Sounds a whole lot like Eli, doesn't it, right? And so here God is saying in, in 1 Samuel 2, 35, that he's gonna replace this priesthood with an eternal priest king. Because here's what he's telling us. He's saying that this priest will walk before his anointed forever. Now, how is that possible? Well, either there's gonna be an eternal king and an eternal priest, or they're the same person, okay? And there's different ways we can even translate that that even make it even more clear. And then look at Psalm 110. Look at Psalm 110, which also picks up this idea in verse number one of Psalm 110, which is one of the very uh, commonly quoted verses in the New Testament. It says, the Lord said unto my Lord. Two different words, Jehovah, the Lord, said unto my Lord, which is a, a term also for a king. Sit thou at my right hand until I make thine enemies my, thy footstool. And almost all the apostles quote this to defend the resurrection of Christ. 
Now look at verse number four. The Lord hath sworn and will not repent. He's not gonna change his mind. Thou, now hold on, who is thou? It's the Lord, the anointed, that would conquer the enemies in verse number one. So he's saying to that king in verse number one, thou art a priest forever. So is this person a king or is he a priest? King or priest? Both. You'll be a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Boy, for a guy who only has three verses in the Old Testament, he sure shows up a lot, you know? Okay, then look at the next part of your handout. Not only did God plan to replace the high priest, he planned to replace Israel's kingdom of priests with priests from all nations. Look at Isaiah 66. This is interesting to me. Isaiah 66, which is the very last chapter of Isaiah in verse number 19, God is talking about calling the nations. Now, up to this point, God is very narrow in who the kingdom of priests is. It is one nation, the nation of Israel. But in Isaiah 66, God broadens his scope and talks about all of these other nations, Tarshish, Pool, Lud, that draw the bow, to Tubal and Javan, to the isles afar off that have not heard my fame, neither have seen my glory, verse number 19. And they, speaking of the nations, they shall declare my glory among the Gentiles. Okay? Now look at verse 20. And they shall bring all your brethren for an offering unto the Lord out of all nations, upon horses and in chariots and in litters and upon mules and upon swift beasts to my holy mountain, Jerusalem, as the children of Israel bring an offering in a clean vessel into the house of the Lord. Now look at verse 21. I will take of them for priests and for Levites. Who is them? Tarshish and all the other nations. So God is saying that the time will come in the last days when I will replace the, the priesthood responsibility of one nation with all nations. And that is what prepares us for the New Testament understanding of priesthood. That number one, Christ is the promised priest that will minister forever and who offers a perfect sacrifice for us. In fact, Hebrews 7 through 10 expounds on this in the entirety of those chapters. And I'm not going to spend as much time because we talked about this in our lesson on sacrifice, but I want you to think about this. When we start talking about Christ's better priesthood, our temptation is to be like, yeah, salvation, great. We go to Jesus. We don't go to a priest. Time out. It has more application than that. The emphasis in Hebrews 7 is that Christ offered a sacrifice once and for all. He didn't go every year on the Day of Atonement. He went once and for all, that his sacrifice is superior in the sense that it was one time. That doesn't just have to do with our salvation going to Jesus instead of a priest. Listen, that has something to say about the doctrine of eternal security. Because for someone to say that they need to be resaved, they are in essence saying that Christ as a priest needs to offer a second sacrifice. So when we look to Christ as the better priest, we understand that our salvation is eternal. And then Christian, what will come for you is a lot of times our doubts about salvation are centered on us, aren't they? They all have the word I. Did I pray the right prayer? Have I lived a good enough 
life? Did I change enough at the moment of my conversion? Did I understand enough when I received Christ? Friend, when you start talking like that, you're forgetting that it's not about your offering, it's about the offering of the great high priest, Jesus Christ. When we understand the priesthood of Christ, we understand the security of our salvation is in him, not in us. Number two, look at Hebrews 10, verse 22. The, The idea of priesthood shows us that Jesus doesn't just bring the priests near to God. Jesus continually brings us near to God. Look at Hebrews 10, verse 22. Do you remember how we saw this in the book of Numbers? That the way God described the movement of the priests closer to the sanctuary was he said that the privilege of the priesthood is that God would draw them near to himself. And actually, number 16 or whatever it was, he criticizes them for thinking that that wasn't enough. But look at Hebrews 10, as it describes those who believe in Christ. What does the author of Hebrews tell us to do in verse 22? And let us draw near. Immediately following a description of Christ's high priestly sacrifice for us, the author of Hebrews says that as a priesthood, you and I are supposed to draw near to the great high priest and God himself in full assurance of faith. We don't have to worry like that high priest did. Remember, if he came into the Holy of Holies with any mess ups, that dude dropped dead. In fact, they were so worried about that, they tied a rope around the man so they could pull him out and not go in and die. You know what I mean? But he says, because of Christ, we can draw near like a priest in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled. By the way, that's what the priest did. They would sprinkle the blood sprinkled from an evil conscience in our bodies, washed with pure water. A priest, their ordination included a ceremonial washing. And so here the author of Hebrews is saying that you and I, like a priest, have that same access to the presence of God. And he says, because you have that access, draw near. Now here's what we ought to ask ourselves, Christian. If God has opened up the way to the Holy of Holies, I wonder how often you take advantage of that privilege. There are many Christians who have the access to God, but don't access God. They've been brought near, but they do not draw near. And it reminds me of the words that Moses said to the sons of Korah in number 16. Isn't it enough for you to be able to draw near. Christian, if God has granted us such a privilege, we must take advantage of that. Draw near to his presence today. When we pray, Christian, draw near. Be a spectator, draw near. Tomorrow, as you go about your week, draw near to him. He invites you in his presence. He's opened up the Holy of Holies. The curtain, the veil has been torn in two by the sacrifice of Christ on the cross. Draw near. He's not blocking you out. You don't enter by your own accord. Some of you are like, well, I don't draw near because I'm messed up. I'm sinning and I'm doing this. Hey, friend, you are not entering into the presence of God by your own merit. No, your heart, your conscience has been sprinkled with the blood of Christ. 
You have been, look at verse 22, past tense, you've been washed. You don't need to be washed again. You've been washed with pure water. So draw near. Here's the next application in the New Testament, that Jesus as our priest continually prays for us. Hebrews 7.25, look at it. You're familiar with this verse, I'm sure. It says, wherefore, he is able to save them to the uttermost that come unto God by him, seeing he ever liveth to make intercession for them. Now, it's interesting is that the only time we see intercession by the priest in the Old Testament is Leviticus 16. When he's intercessing, he's confessing the sins of the nation over the head of the scapegoat. So the high priest would pray and confess the sins of the nation. Remember, it was a certain type of sin, remember? It was the sins that they intentionally committed. He confessed them. And what God is saying about Christ's ministry to us is that you and I, we may forget to confess certain sins, but we have a great high priest who is interceding on behalf of the sins you don't even remember to confess. He makes intercession for you, and that is what gives you, gives you the privilege to be brought near unto God. And here's the last, oh, we got two more. Look at 1 Peter 2.9. How do we apply the priesthood? Well, remember, priests were ambassadors. They were ministers. They were representatives. The priesthood nation of Israel was called to spread God's glory throughout the nations. God said, ask of the heathen inheritance and I will give it to you. God in, in desired for all of the nations to be part of the inheritance of Israel. And in the same way, in 1 Peter 2.9, look at it with me. Peter speaking to Christians, both Jew and Gentile, says, but ye are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. He quotes Exodus 19. And the idea of a royal priesthood is that the people of God are supposed to be God's representatives to the rest of the world. Remember this week, Christian, you are called to reflect God's character like the priesthood would, and you are called to preach his gospel. What do the priests do? We know that on their clothing, specifically on their headpiece, was a, a band of gold that inscribed, said, holy to the Lord. That's who you should be. You are supposed to be holy to the Lord. And we know by Leviticus 10 that the ministry of the priests was to teach people to separate the clean from the unclean, Christian, you may not be a teacher behind the pulpit or in a children's church or a Sunday school, but you are called to teach all nations the gospel of Christ. To help them be called out from the unclean and become clean. Believe it or not, evangelism doesn't start in Matthew 28. It started in Exodus 19. You are called to represent God, and I wonder how you're doing with that. I wonder when the last time was that you were an ambassador and you were calling the nations as an offering unto God, as Isaiah 66 says. So that's our blank. They're called to exercise a priestly influence on the rest of the world. Here's the last thought. Christ's priestly work means he will one day perfectly cleanse the earth of sin and false worship. All the way back in Genesis 2, what was the job of the priest? Adam. It was to work the garden and to keep it, to protect it, to preserve it from impurities. 
And Christ, at the end of his ministry, has several encounters with the priests in the temple. We'll talk about this next week. And one of them, remember, he goes in the temple, and what does he do? He cleanses it. He drives out the money changers. So as to say, my spirit is not in this place anymore. But that earthly picture of Christ is a picture of his priestly ministry of one day he will restore the original temple, all of creation. And he will replace the old earth with a new heaven and a new earth, a perfect sanctuary that will be cleansed from all sin and all of the curse of which all people will be clean and holy and can enter into his presence perfectly in Revelation 22 verses 3 through 5. It describes this to us as it says, and there shall be no more curse, but the throne of God and of the lamb shall be in it and his servants or ministers or priests shall serve him and they shall see his face and his name shall be in their foreheads. That's describing the priestly garment. And there shall be no night there and they need no candle, neither light of the sun for the Lord God giveth them light and they shall reign forever and ever. My friend, the day will come when our great high priest will cleanse this earth of all sin. He will cleanse this earth of the curse and he will establish a new heaven and earth, a new temple that will not be touched by the curse of sin. And it will be in that future sanctuary as his priests, we will worship him forever and ever and ever. As evil prevails in this world, remember that in the same way Christ entered the temple and drove out the money changers and the corrupt priests, the day will come where he enters in, as Revelation describes, on a white horse. And he will cleanse this earthly temple. And he will remove all of sin and its effects from it. And we as his servants or as his priests will see his face and minister before him forever and ever. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the privilege of our priesthood. God, I pray even now we are drawing near to your presence, knowing God we can come before you because of the sprinkling of the blood of Christ. I pray, Lord, as a priesthood unto you, God, that we would draw near this morning through our worship, through our singing. And God, that you would speak to us. God, we'd recognize the privilege that you have given us your word. Lord, in your word is an even better and more reliable word than the vocal voice that spoke from Mount Sinai. Because it too reveals to us the commandments of God. I pray, Lord, as your priests, we would listen well. And God, we would be holy unto you, and therefore we'd go out in the world and represent you well. In the name of Jesus Christ, our great high priest, amen.